Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in Psalm 51, and that's page 474 in the Bibles across the room. When I'm done, um, I will say, this is a reading of God's word, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we respond that way because we are so thankful that God has provided his word for us. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. God, have mercy on us. We are broken. We are full of sin. Pour out your grace on us, Lord, so that we can be made righteous in your sight. Help us, God, to rejoice in your salvation. Remind us of your faithful love. Break our spirits so that we may increase in your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of your word today. Please focus our hearts and minds on your merciful work. Bless Pastor Kyle as he moves through your Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good morning, church. How we doing? Happy Father's Day to you, fathers in the house. Oh, man, not electric in the air there, huh? Um, I am a dad. I love being a dad. Uh, it's, it's awesome. My wife is in Nashville for four nights, so uh, I have barely kept my kids alive for the last, <laughs> and that's a win, so I'm killing it this Father's Day. Um, so uh, we are going through the book of Psalms. And we're not hitting every psalm. There's 150 psalms in there, but we're going through the book of Psalms for the entire summer, and we're breaking it up into four categories. The first category of psalms is about God's holiness and his greatness. We call this the creation psalms. The second category is about our human depravity and the fact that we live in a broken world and a fractured world. 
And these are the Psalms of what we were calling the fall. Uh, the third category is how God promises to do something about our uh, broken condition. That's the songs of redemption. And then the last category of Psalms is how God has acted, and those are Psalms of thanksgiving. And we have that as the category of restoration. And so what we're doing today is we're, we're taking a look at the last uh, Psalm that we're going to cover of the fall. And this is a personal lament. It's Psalm 51. And this is one of the most famous Psalms that there is. Hundreds, have so hundreds of songs have been inspired by this song. And uh, it, it's a song of a man who's crying out to God because he's broken over his personal sin. But there's good news in this psalm because it shows us that God is a merciful God to the broken. Uh, when I was first coming to Living Stones, I started serving in the high school ministry uh, back in 2008. And um, the high school students, we met off, uh, we, we had the church building, but where we met as high school students was off-site. And there was another building that we met in, and, and we wanted to come up with like a cool kind of creative name for the building. And we asked the students what they wanted to name it, and they decided to name the building The Haven. Which I thought was really interesting, because a haven means the safe place, a place of refuge. And when we asked them, why do you want to name it the haven? They said, well, because a lot of times people feel like they can't come to church if they're broken. Like they can't, they, they feel like they have to have all their stuff together. They have to, they have to put on the right face. They have to, they have to put on, mind their P's and Q's. And they said, but we want this group to be a place for the broken. We want it to be a haven for the broken. And it was a beautiful display of God's character and God's heart. And what we see in this passage is God's mercy. And I think the big idea that I want us to walk away with is this, is God's mercy is a haven for the broken. And um, I could preach a hundred sermons on this text. This is probably, this is my favorite song. Hands down, I, I, I picked it. It's my favorite. Um, and it's my favorite because um, it's, it shows us that God's mercy is far more than we can handle sometimes. Um, and so I, I, didn't I had a lot of trouble outlining this because I, I had pages and pages and pages of a sermon. But um, we're just going to look at four words today. That's how we're going to go through it. Four words, and I'm going to walk you through that. The first word is this, the word brokenness. When we read Psalm 51, we, what we see is a man who is broken. Uh, you can hear this in his language, how he's speaking. He's, he speaks to God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's not the cry of a guy who thinks he has his act together. That's a cry of a man who is deeply broken over his sin. And I believe that Psalm 51 was recorded for us to be an example for how we ought to approach God. And Psalm 51 shows us that, that it is okay and it is actually proper to approach God in brokenness over our sin. In verse 8, it says this, 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Um, To set this up of why David, you might be asking the question, this was written by King David, the famous king of Israel. Why was David so broken? Well, if you look in your Bibles, you see at the top of the psalm before it gets into any verses, there's a little explanation of why this was written. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had had uh, sexual relationships with Bathsheba, who was a woman who was not his wife. So here's the story. Um, It was a springtime, and all the kings were out at war, but David decided to stay home. And he was relaxing, and he went up onto the roof of his palace, and he looks over, and he sees a woman on top of her roof bathing. And he likes the look of this woman. She's fine. And, you know, she must have been really fine because she caught the attention of David. And David had, you know, a lot of beautiful women in his palace. Now, this woman was married to one of David's greatest warriors named Uriah. But Uriah was out on the battlefield where David should have been. And David instead said, hey, bring me this woman. So he has Bathsheba come over to his palace. He sleeps with her. And then she goes home and then she sends message a little bit later saying, guess what? I'm pregnant. So David, to try to cover up what he did, he invited Uriah home from the battlefield. And uh, Uriah probably knew what was going on because there was gossip. You know, this happened in the palace. It wasn't a private thing. So he had probably heard from some messengers that this had happened. So David says, hey, why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? You know, I'm just so grateful for you. And Uriah says, no, I'm going to sleep here right on the front porch of your palace. Likely a way to publicly shame David. Um, So David gets ticked. And David writes a letter, hands it to Uriah, says, take it back to your commander. And the letter said, when you go into battle, I want you to have Uriah go forward, and then I want you to draw back so Uriah can be killed in battle. And so he has Uriah murdered, and um, not only him, when that happens, some other soldiers die. And so he does this to try to cover up his own sin cover up the fact that he committed adultery. Now he's an adulterer and he's a murderer and he's uh, done this, but he still doesn't get it until God sends to him a prophet named Nathan and, and Nathan comes and rebukes him and says, David, you are in the wrong. You really sinned against God. And at that point, David uh, was broken of his sin. And then this is when he wrote Psalm 51. He writes Psalm 51 as a broken man. And that gives context to us in verse 8 when he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's talking about this idea of conviction. When you feel sorry, and, and anybody ever feel so hurt over their own personal sin that it just feels like your bones are broken? It makes you feel sick to your stomach. That's what David is feeling. And what he's saying is that this is God's doing. It is God who convicts us of sin. This is why parents sometimes it's so frustrating because you're like, aren't you broken over this? And they're just like, no, I don't understand the problem. Well, because you cannot convict anybody of their sin. That is God's work. And and so what we should be asking for as his people is we should say, God, when I go astray, will you love me enough to break me over my sin? 
You see, this is what delights God. Verse 17, um, or verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is David's way of saying, after I've sinned against you, God, God, you don't want me to just come to you with a bunch of religious uh, do-goodism. You don't want me to just come and, 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 and just do a bunch of religious activity to try to make up for my sin. God doesn't want you to make up for your sin. He wants you to be sorry over your sin. Imagine um, you were a child and you were taking a test at school and you cheated. I know none of you have ever cheated before in your life, but just imagine that you were a little child who cheated on your test. And you cheated and you got caught. And the teacher said, because you cheated, you're failing this test and I'm calling your mom. So she gets on the phone and she calls your mom. And so you ride the bus home and you get the get off the bus and you run home. You know your mom's not going to be home for another hour. So you run right into the house and you clean the whole house. You clean your room. You make your bed. You vacuum. You even, do, you even clean the, the, the toilets. You do it all. And then your mom comes in and she says, hey, we need to talk. And you're like, what about this incredible house, huh? <laughs> do you think your mom will be really impressed over your hard work cleaning the house? What does she want in that moment? She doesn't want you to try to make up for your sin. She wants you to be broken over the fact that you cheated on your test. And in the same way, sometimes we get caught up into this thing. When we know we screw up before God, we think we need to go to God and try to impress him with more Bible reading, better church attendance, cleaning up our talk so we stop cussing, you know, watching cleaner movies, whatever it is for you. We, we think that we can go to God and try to make up for our wrongdoings. And God says, I don't want you to make up for your sin. What, what is pleasing to me is for you to be broken over your sin. He is a haven for the broken. The church should be a place for the broken. It's been said by many preachers before that the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. This is a place where we should come and we don't have to feel like we have our act together. We can come and we can be honest before God. This is what is pleasing to him. Um, If you uh, look at why David was broken, there's three reasons why he was broken. Number one, he he, he had lost his joy. He says to me, let me hear joy and gladness in verse 8. And in verse 17, um, or in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He, he was broken because he's like, I just can't keep on going bearing this guilt, bearing the fact that I committed adultery, I committed murder, I sinned against the whole kingdom. I can't bear this anymore. God, I need you to restore me back to joy. Secondly, he's, he's broken because he's lost closeness with God. He says, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, the problem with sin is it separates us from intimacy with God. That's the problem with sin. And you guys know this because when we sin against each other, husbands and wives, let's be honest, when you sin against each other, does it make you want to like hug each other and spend time together? No, it makes you want to avoid each other. Well, that, that's the natural consequence of sin. Is, is, is it, there's a separation. 
And this is killing David. He's just pleading out to God saying, God, I can't stand the thought of not being close to you. I wonder if that's the same for you. Maybe the reason you're not broken over your sin is because you don't really care about being close to God. But for those who want to be close to God, who enjoy his daily presence, our sin kills us because we know that it separates us from his intimacy. And then lastly, he wants to be restored back to a place of having purpose. He says in verse 13, if you restore me, God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David knows that his witness has been uh, damaged because of his sin. And he knows that his only hope is if God gives him mercy and grace. So he is a man who is deeply broken. And so it begs the question, are you broken over your sin? Do you even care? Or are you just so numb to life that you just you don't even care when you screw up and sin against God? It doesn't affect you at all. If that's where you're at, I think the prayer that you need to have is, God, if I've gone astray, please convict me and break my heart so that I can be restored. Okay, so that's the first word, brokenness. The second word that I want us to think about is ownership. If you notice in this passage, David owns his sin. Um, He says to to everybody in verse 3, he says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He says, I know it and I own it. And so a few things that he owns about his sin. First of all, he owns the nature of his sin. I don't know if you noticed, but the way that he describes sin is he uses four different words. The first word that he uses is he uses the word transgression. And the word transgression means to cross a boundary that has been set in place. So if you think about when you're driving, there's the two yellow lines. Don't cross those boundaries because it's unsafe and it could lead to harm for you and other people. Well, God has given us boundaries in life. And he says, I don't want you to cross these boundaries because it will lead to harm for you and other people. But when we cross those boundaries, it is sin. That's transgression. The second uh, nature of sin is he calls sin iniquity. Iniquity means to pervert something that is good or to uh, warp something that is good. So David certainly did this when it came to the the good gift of sex. God gave uh, us the gift of sex to be enjoyed between husband and wife in marriage. Everybody say amen. It's Father's Day because of this good gift. Okay. Uh, he gave us this good gift, but this good gift can be easily perverted and distorted, can't it? And David did this. When he went outside of his uh, bedroom to, to go and sleep with another man's wife, he distorted what God created to be beautiful for a lesser kind of beauty. And we do this all the time with uh, uh, the distortion of sex. Power. David distorted power. Bathsheba probably really didn't have a choice on whether or not she could refuse the king. He used his power to manipulate her. He used his power to have Uriah murdered. It was a distortion of power. Now, power is not bad. Power is a gift from God that God gives to certain humans for the sake of service and flourishing of others. If you are in any sort of leadership, okay, whether you know, you're leading anybody, whether it's your kids or at your work or here at the church, God gave you a level of power not to be used for your selfish interest, but to be used for the flourishing of others. Amen? 
but that can be easily distorted for selfish reasons, and that's what David did. And so there's, he, he calls sin iniquity, this, this distortion uh, of what God created to be good. And we do this all the time. We do it with comfort. We do it with money. We do it with hobbies. We do it with, with everything in, in life. There, there's a perversion or a distortion of what God created to be good, and that's iniquity. The, the third word that David uses for sin is the word sin. And sin simply means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. And I try to be an archer. I try to go archery hunting. I'm a really good archer hiker. That's what I am. Okay? And so, you know, when you're shooting a target, you, there's a mark that you want to hit. Okay? You want to hit that mark. But to miss the mark, that's sin. God says, this is how I want you to live. But then we miss. We fall short. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has clearly laid out in his scriptures the ways in which he wants us to live, but then we often fall short of those ways. Every one of us. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you know this because you say things like, well, nobody's perfect, but God's standard is perfect. So anything less is sin. And then the last word he uses is evil. He said, I've done what is evil in your sight. I wonder if you've ever said that to God. Have you ever said, I have done what is evil to you? Probably not, because most of the times we think that the evil people are out there. But the evil person is right here. Evil just simply means bad or immoral or wrong. And David just owns, I did wrong. Okay, that's the, so he owns the nature of sin. Secondly, he, know, he owns who his sin is chiefly against. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When you read that, just kind of catch your attention. I think it, he says against you only, God, for two reasons. Um, first, when you read that, you're like, wait a second, David, you sinned against Bathsheba? You sinned against Uriah? You sinned against the army? Because you had many of them killed? You sinned against your nation? Like you, you brought the whole nation under, under shame because of this? You sinned against a lot of people, David. What's this whole talking about you only sinned against God? Like this was a private thing. Well, what he's saying is when we sin, the one chiefly offended is God himself. When you sin against your husband or your wife, when you sin against your kids, when you sin against your friends or even your enemies, because they're made in God's image, guess who's the one who is mostly offended? God. And that's not really a big deal to you if God is small. But if you have a big view of God as we're called to as Christians, that's a big deal. If you esteem God highly, you'll be wrecked over the fact that you have broken his heart. You know, we're not really affected when we find out we hurt the pe people around us that we don't really care about. But we're really affected when we hurt the ones that we esteem highly. So if you esteem God highly, you're going to be really affected by the fact that when you sin, it's against, chiefly against God. It's against him. Now, um, the second thing I think he's getting at here is, is something that I learned in the book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. And the book's premise is basically sometimes we miss things because this is an Eastern book, and sometimes we, we miss it because of our Western thinking. And, and, and they said this, and Easterners would understand that a king owns everything in his kingdom. Um, and it was, it was common practice of the surrounding nations around Israel for the kings 
if they wanted something, they just took it because it was theirs. If they saw a beautiful woman, they just took her because she was in their kingdom. Does that make sense? So their, their premise is saying, well, David, there, there's a good chance that David started living like these surrounded nations kings and started saying, well, I like that woman. She's mine. Bring her to me. I have no remorse. Until he started thinking about not the standards of culture, but the standards of God. Because what do the Ten Commandments say? The Seventh Commandment is you shall not commit adultery. And the Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey or boat or house, or chariot, or airplane, whatever your neighbor has, (laughs) or their wife. And so David, in saying against you, you only have I sinned, it's a good chance that he's saying, look, according to the standards of culture, I'm in the right, but according to your perfect and holy standards, I'm in the wrong. And this is convicting for us because there's so many things in which we could say to God, God, everybody's doing it. You know, like, you know, you need to get with the times, God, because we've adapted, we've evolved, we're better, we figured out this whole humanity thing, and we know how to think about sexuality, and we know how to think about power, we know how to think about money, so you just need to get with the times. And God says, no, 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 no. At the end of the day, you're not going to be judged by culture standards, you're going to be judged by my standards. So it's against God alone that we sin. Okay, the third thing is this, is he owns the origin of his sin. He says, uh, behold, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or uh, some of your translations might say, and from the time I was born, I was in sin. He's he's, He's owning the origin of his sin. That sin is not just an action that you do, but it's a power that has been in you since the time that you were conceived in your mother's womb. Do you believe this? We sin because we're born sinners. We sin because we're born sinners. Now, I know when we hold our sweet little babies and they look like little beautiful angels with a clean slate, if you watch them long enough and you let them be around other children, you realize that they are sinners. (laughs) Right? Case in point, biting. I was a biter when I was a little guy. And my, my littlest one, Bobo, he was a biter when he was a little guy. Okay, now that's not a learned behavior. It's not like Amanda's taking a bite of my steak and I'm just like, ah, you know, just getting her. But as soon as somebody does something that he doesn't like or takes a toy that he wanted to play with, he just attacks them and ah, bites them. Why? Because there's sin, the power of sin within them. You don't have to teach us how to disobey. We do it naturally. You don't have to teach us how to be greedy. We're greedy naturally. You don't have to teach us how to lust. We're lustful naturally. You don't have to teach us how to be selfish. We're selfish naturally because sin is in us. It's, it's, we're totally depraved. Our mind, our will, our emotion, there's not one aspect of who we are that's not affected in, in a, at least a little bit of a way by this idea of sin. And so David just owns it. And so what I want you to get in this section is, is David is just owning who he is and what he's done. He doesn't make light of his sin like sometimes we do. Oh, it's not that big of a deal, God. You know, nobody's perfect, so I know you understand. He doesn't do that. 
And he also doesn't uh, make excuses. He's not like, but God, you know, you know how stressful it is to be a king. I mean, I'm just, I need a little bit of time to relax and to just do something fun for me once in a while. And she was beautiful. I mean, she shouldn't have been bathing on the roof. He didn't make excuses. He just owned what he did. He owned it. Now, I think there's two hindrances for us owning our sin. I think that the, the first hindrance is us not being familiar enough with the commands and ways of God. Um, David had to be reminded by the prophet Nathan that he screwed up. And, and guess what? We have hearts that are forgetful too. We have, we have amnesia. We have spiritual amnesia in our hearts. We, we tend, because we're filled with sin, we tend to forget God's beautiful ways. And so that's why we need to be in church and we need to read the law at church. That's why we need to be in the scripture. There's been so many times when I'm reading my Bible and I've been like, oh dang, I've been forgetting to do that. I... I need to get my act together. I've been sinning against God. God calls me to do this, and I haven't been doing that. We need to be familiar with the word. And some of you, that's why you're never broken of your sin, and that's also why your salvation isn't that joyful, because you're not familiar enough with the scriptures, okay? And so the easy way to do this is just pick up the Bible. We have Bibles around here. Just take one, take it home, and start reading. The book of Luke is a good place to start. Um, Secondly, is sometimes we're too busy. We're too busy to have self-reflection. This is a huge problem of our culture. In order to be broken of your sin and want to even rush towards God, you need to have a time of self-reflection. But a lot of times we're too busy. It's from work. We play music all the way to work. And then we get back in the car, we come home, and then we go to diff- different activities and hobbies. Then we rush and throw food down our gullets before we go to bed. And then we watch Netflix, and then we go to bed. But we don't take much time for self-reflection. But God's people are notorious of people who are supposed to pause and think about God and think about who they are in His presence. The saints of old had this prayer. They called it the prayer of examine, and they would do it after every day. And they would sit before God quietly, and they would just take a time to thank God for who he is, to reflect on the joys that they had today, that day and the sorrows that they had that day. And then they would also reflect on the ways that they'd sinned against God so that they could go to bed every night confessing to God their sin and asking for his cleansing. But sometimes you just need to slow down. The book uh, Screwtape Letters written by C.S. Lewis Uh, was a book in which C.S. Lewis described the way that demonic activity works in this world. And uh, it's written by a chief demon to a lesser demon named Screwtape. And the lesser demon named Screwtape is, is given a Christian to try to mess with. And the chief demon says, hey, one of the ways that you can mess with him is just make him busy. Make him fill his life with so much noise and so much busyness that he won't have time to focus on himself or on God. And that was written before cell phones. That was written before we had computers in our homes. Like, that was written before you could do live streaming of anything. If it was true then, it is certainly true now. And so this is why at church sometimes we try to just slow down. We have a little bit longer services so that we can slow down and examine God and examine ourselves. This is the call 
of the Christian. And it's essential if we're going to own our sin before him. Now, the next word I want to uh, approach this psalm with is the word mercy. Everybody say mercy. There we go. We're waking up. Mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. How does David have the motivation to go to God so boldly after he screwed up so bad? Have you ever wondered that? Like I read this psalm and it doesn't sound like David is making polite requests. He's making bold pleas, almost demands. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hide your face from me. Cast me not away from your presence. He comes to God boldly. What is his motivation to do this? Well, it's not God's holiness. It's not his justice. It's not his power. What is it? His mercy. You see, if, if you, all you understand about God is that God is all-powerful, which he is, amen? If all you understand about God is that God is all-knowing or all-present, which he is, if all you understand about God is that God is just, you will fear God. You might even respect him, but you won't run to him when you're broken. It is the mercy of God that leads us into his arms when we've screwed up. And David cries out, he says, according to your steadfast love. That's, that's relentless love. When I see the word steadfast in the Bible, I just think of waves coming onto the shore. They just don't stop. It doesn't matter who's on the beach. The waves are coming. And they don't stop. That's how God's love is. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. His love just keeps coming at you. This is what Paul's all calls one-way love. It's God's love coming towards you that has nothing to do with you and your behavior. It has everything to do with his mercy. It's his love coming at us. And, and you see, this is the love that, that David goes to God as a broken child going to a loving father. And he knows that his standing with God is not based on his merit, but rather on God's mercy. Everybody say hallelujah. His standing with God is based on God's mercy. Um, listen, I got three kids and they're awesome. They're great kids. And I love them. But my love is not based on their performance. Um, I'm sure that there's way other more well-behaved kids out there than mine. I'm positive of that, okay? But it doesn't mean when I meet one of these angel children, I'm just going to swap out one of my kids for them. Be like, all right, Josiah, you're out. This one's in. Welcome to the family. You're a Bateson now. That's not how it's going to go. And I tell my kids often, every night when we put them to bed, I say, listen, I love you, and there's nothing you can do that can stop me from loving you. My love is not based on your performance. It's not based on your behavior. I love you because you're mine. David goes to God based on God's covenantal love knowing that he belongs to God as one of his children. And so he knows that he can do murder and he can do adultery. He can, he can do the worst sins in the world and God will still not abandon him. Are you that free? 
Are you that free where you know you could go out and you could go to the brothels today and you could go and you could just screw up and you can go and murder somebody today in anger and God will still forgive you if you come to him broken? Are you that free? Uh, Taylor here was talking to um, one of the persons who works for another company that uses this building during the week and that person is an atheist and um, Taylor was telling him about this concept of grace, that God is so loving and steadfast towards us with mercy that we can go do that. And if we come to him in repentance, he'll forgive. And this guy just said, I wish I had that kind of freedom. You see, we can come to God because we know that God is merciful. We know that God is kind and full of steadfast love, and his love for us is not based on our merit, it's based on his mercy. And perhaps one of the reasons that you don't go to God is because your view of God is that he is an angry judge and not a loving and merciful father. You feel that if you go to God broken, he's going to give you a lecture or the cold shoulder or maybe the whipping hand. But Jesus shows us on the cross that God gives us open arms. He is so full of mercy. And I think one of the reasons that this psalm is recorded for us, I mean, David screwed up really bad, didn't he? <laughs> I think it's recorded for us so that we can read this and be like, wow, if God can love David, he can love me too. Like, I feel like I've done something pretty bad this week. And if God can forgive this dude, he can forgive me. And that leads me to my last word, dependence. The only way to get access to this forgiveness and restoration is through dependence on God. If you notice here, David doesn't express dependence of his own will. He doesn't say, I'm going to dig down deep, God, and I'm going to impress you. He expresses dependence completely on God. Look at what he says. He says, have mercy on me. Wash me from my iniquity. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. He says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. He says, restore to me. All of these are things in which David is saying, you have to do the work because I'm not strong enough to do it. He says, wash me. This word is pregnant with meaning because if, if priests were to go into the presence of God in the temple, they had to go through a lot of ceremonial washings. And he's saying, God, I know that though the, the water isn't enough. I need you to, to cleanse my soul. And if you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. And isn't that a beautiful picture of purity? Um, one of my favorite things about living in northern Nevada is in the wintertime, sometimes it rains and it's all mud everywhere, okay? And then you get it on your cars, you feel awesome, it's so much fun. And then you, uh, you have mud, but then you can, go to, you can go to bed at night, it might be raining, but then it gets cold over the night. And then you wake up in the morning and the whole thing is just covered in snow. And it's like God just sent snow down and everything that was muddy disappeared. And that's a beautiful picture of God's power of forgiveness. 
that no matter how muddy and dirty your life is, what you've done, what's been done against you, whatever it is, God has the power at his word to just pronounce one word and you can be washed white as snow. He says, purge me with hyssop. I love that word purge. That's not just like, give me a light rub down. This is like, I need a deep scrub. I need a deep clean in my soul, okay? Like some of you bachelors need to go purge your toilets at home. For the love of God, go purge your toilets. Clean them. This is what we need in our soul. We need a deep purge. We need God to reach in. This is why David says, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, he's saying, I don't have a heart that is strong enough to pursue you. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to change the affections of my heart. And some of us were falling into the pattern of sin over and over and over again because we're trying to do it on your own. And this is a call for you to stop trying to do it on your own and a call to surrender to God in dependence and say, God, give me new affections. You need to do this work, but you have to surrender. He's dependent. Now, Benjamin Franklin at one point said, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. That's bad news. Because if it's true that we're contaminated with sin, all the helping that we try to do with ourselves just makes things worse. And this is the burden of religion. The burden of religion says, you help yourself and then God will step in to help you. But the freedom of the gospel says God helps those who can't help themselves. God just wants us to come to him dependent and surrender, and that's when he shows up most powerfully. Because any cleaning of ourselves that we try to do, we just make matters worse. When I was a kid, I used to go out on those rainy days. I would ride my go-kart, and I'd ride the go-kart through the mud, and I'd get it all over my face and my teeth. It was everywhere, you know? Just get it all over your body. And then I would come home and I'd be hungry for dinner. And my mom would be like, you ain't coming in here. And she would go get some washcloth. She'd get the hose and she'd make me strip down. And then she would cleanse me on the porch before she brought me in. Because if I was trying to clean myself up with muddy hands, I'm just spreading mud around. I'm making the matters worse. Essentially what I needed is I needed somebody who was clean to make me clean. And that's what David is doing here. He's acknowledging he's not clean in the presence of God. He can't clean himself. He needs God to do the work. And so this is an invitation for us to be dependent on God. Now, I know that's hard for us as Americans because we're all about independence. Independence Day is coming up. And as Northern Nevadans, we love being independent. We don't like people trying to help us. We want to be strong and independent. And to an extent, that's good but not when it comes to spirituality. When it comes to spirituality, that's lethal. And spirituality, calls us, God calls us to be completely dependent on him so that he can cleanse us. Now, this cleansing is not just something that just uh, would happen with some water. David knows that he needs a deeper cleansing. And I want to point it out to you in verse 7, something that's my favorite part of this whole passage. It says, purge me with, what does that say, church? Hiss up, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Does anybody know what hyssop is? Just by a show of hands. There's like three, four people in here I see. Hyssop is a branch. It's a plant. It looks kind of like a lavender plant. And that's really weird for somebody to say, cleanse me with the plant. Right? Well, the reference of, of this is so powerful. Hyssop was used in ceremonial cleansings. They would dip it in water and then they would cleanse. And it was a way of ceremony of saying, you are clean. But the first place that hyssop shows up in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 12. When God was sending the 10 plagues and God was sending the final plague of death onto every household because all households stand in sin against God. And God said, I'm sending this final plague of death and there's one way for you to get out of it. I will offer you a substitute. If you take a lamb, your best lamb, and you slaughter that lamb and you put its blood into a bucket and you dip a hyssop branch into that blood and you spread it over the doorpost of your home, I will account that that lamb died for your sins and I will pass over your house. And so when David is crying out, purge me with hyssop, what he's saying is I need to be cleansed by the blood of the lamb. It's my only hope. Water's not enough. Good works are not enough. Only the blood of the lamb can do this deep inner cleansing that I need. And David knew that, you know, every year they celebrated the feast of Passover and every year they slaughtered lambs. But David knew that those lambs were just placeholders because furry little farm animals can't satisfy the wrath of God for human sin. They were just placeholders and they were looking forward. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to one day when God would actually do something about our sin. And that's where we see Jesus entering the picture. And in the New Testament, when Jesus is starting his ministry, he's walking up to the river. The, the prophet John the Baptist sees him and he tells all of his followers, he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Because human sin against a holy God needs a human substitute to pay for that sin. And so Jesus willingly came to be the Lamb of God so that by faith we can be purged in our souls. And how did he die? With a joyful and willing heart and with open arms. And I think the open arms of Jesus on the cross is him saying to us, come to me because I'm a haven for the broken. Um, if you ever doubt how merciful God is and how far God would be willing to go to forgive you, even over the sins that you can't forgive yourself for, you need to look at the cross because on the cross, Jesus says, I'm willing to go this far. And if you come to me broken, there's not one sin that you could ever commit that I would be unwilling to forgive because your sins are simply a drop in the oceans of my mercy. And so this is the invitation for us today. Now we're gonna, um, the sermon's over. I'm supposed to pray now, I think. So let's pray really quick. Uh, God, thank you for being so merciful. Forgive us for times where we don't take a moment to just reflect on your mercy. We thank, we thank you that you're not just all-powerful and you're not just um, a holy and perfect judge and you're not just all-knowing, but you're also perfectly gracious and merciful. 
And if we as humans can show that kind of love to our kids who we love, how much more perfect is your love towards us? Help us to come to you and to trust in you and to know that it's okay to be broken in your presence because when we come to you broken, you restore us to gladness.